open mine eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Open mine eyes, illumine me, Spirit divine. like to invite you to a soul-level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guest's spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. Joining us today for Song of the Soul is Greg Gilbertson, an up-and-coming finger-style guitarist. Only rarely have my Song of the Soul guests shared songs without lyrics, but Greg's music is so stunning and captivating that I just knew I had to share it with you. So I decided to take the chance on interviewing the guy whose CD is called Limited Vocabulary. I think you'll discover a profound spirit and a great guitar talent in Greg Gilbertson. Greg, welcome to Song of the Soul. It's good to be here, Mark. For some reason, I have the sense of you as a rural-oriented guy. I mean, there's the mention of duck hunting and sitting by lake and all those kind of things. Are you city-born? I grew up in Chip when I've lived sort of in town my whole life. We were kind of on the edge of town, but everyone in Chippewa, it's not terribly urban. I met you, Greg, at a fundraiser for a medical center in Ukraine. You were doing benefit performance as part of that fundraiser. What's your connection with Valentina and with the orphanage and with your care for that kind of concern? I actually got connected with Valentina and her outfit, Chalice of Mercy. She sent me an email. She had heard about me through a friend and she was just looking for someone to perform. And since then, I've played for a couple of her dinners now that she does to raise funds. And um, her and I have struck up quite a relationship. She's a real neat gal. What drew you there? Is it because you're looking for places, venues to share your music, or is it because you believe in the cause? Is it the religious, spiritual-oriented end of what Valentina's doing? Yeah, I think for all those reasons. You know, I wanted a place to perform, and I like performing in my hometown, but there's just not many outlets for solo instrumental guitar in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. 
but I want to come alongside of Val and, and, and help her out in what she's doing. I think it's obviously very needed. What she's trying to do is build a medical center in her hometown in Ukraine, which is uh, pretty impoverished. And she had some pictures at one thing that she did of, of what they have to deal with for medical care over there, and it's just atrocious. But any chance to use my music to, I don't know, further the, I guess it's the gospel, because this is the stuff that needs to be done in the world, and this is these are the people Jesus cares about, and the poor are very much a part of Christ's agenda, and therefore I guess they ought to be part of mine as a musician. Let's talk about your music and your relation to it. I was stunned by the beauty of your guitar playing. It's a very unusual style from my experience. I don't know where you got it, but it's rich. It's almost like you have more fingers than I do on your hands. <laughs> it's, it's just pretty impressive. Is this a long-time love affair with the guitar? Are you other instruments as well? Well, I guess to start from the beginning, when I was a little kid, I mean, two or three or four, I don't know, I barely have a couple like flashes of memories of that. My parents started to be on that Suzuki method with the violin. I don't think I retained any technical, anything or knowledge of music, but it got me started on music, and it just, and I think that made music was part of my life from there on out. And then, then there was some time off from instrument for a while, and sometime in elementary school, I don't remember when, I took four or five years of piano, and I maybe retained some things, but not many. Then, when I was, I think, thirteen, it would have been in eighth grade, a friend of mine played guitar, and gee, you can really play an electric guitar. I thought that was amazing. And so, heck, yeah, I'm going to get one. So I badgered my parents till they got me one, and they did. And I learned to play. When I was in high school, when I was, in a, when I was a freshman, so it would have been a year later, I got hooked up with a guitarist by the name of Trevor Labonte, who's now a jazz guitarist in uh, Austin, Texas, and he's still one of the most fantastic guitarists and musicians I've ever known in my life. And he's just a couple months older than I am, but he got me started really taking, taking guitar and music seriously, and so I'm really thankful for him. And then so I played electric guitar for and just, you know, learned to shred and rock out, I guess. I spent a lot of time doing that. And then about maybe five or six years ago, years ago now, I decided that I was tired of not, I don't, you know, I didn't know a lot of other musicians and I didn't really want to put it in the time to be in a rock band or something like that. And I, um, I went and I saw Phil Keggy here at the State Theater. And what he was able to do, the, the, the way he was able to fill that whole auditorium with just the sound of one guitar just blew me away. I remember as we were leaving, my, my wife had a comment. She said, if you could play guitar like that, man, I'd really be proud of you. And so I learned to play like that. And, I, you know, and, uh, and she's now very proud of you. Not so much. She doesn't. I don't think she cares either way, to be honest. But uh, anyway, that was, that was the beginning of this, what's called fingerstyle guitar, the solo acoustic instrumental guitar thing that I do now. And then I was heavily influenced by another fantastic guitarist from the cities named Billy McLaughlin. And I think we're going to get to, the, uh, in a little bit here, the song I wrote for him on the CD. So, you know, it was kind of an accidental thing playing this way. Like, I just, I had an old, like, maybe $150 guitar that my wife bought in high school just laying around the house that I just hadn't got around to throwing away yet because I didn't own a decent acoustic at the time. So I put some new strings in it and started plinking around, started tuning it differently and doing all this stuff. And, you know, I didn't know anybody else's songs, so if I wanted to play something, I had to write it. And so all of a sudden I'm composing these pieces. Yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't even own any fingerstyle guitar CDs other than one, that one Phil Keggy CD called uh, Beyond Nature. And so I mean, I'm drawn from music from all over the place when I'm writing these pieces, and I think it turned out pretty well, and that, that ends up being a lot of the songs that are on the CD right there. So, Greg, does this mean that you've given up your hopes of becoming a rock star? No, I think that reality has set in. More, <laughs> It would be a better way of saying that, that I've recognized that I'm not going to be a, a rock star. <laughs> 
Well, then what is your objective with this music? How big of a part of your daily life is it? Is it your day job, your night job? Is it just your passion? Is it something you do at church? Yeah. You know, my wife says that I have this place I go to that she calls Guitar Land, and she just quits trying to talk to me. We'll be having a conversation in the car, and if the radio's on, that'll there'll be a chord I like or something, and then my, my mind shuts off, and I'm in a different world, and I'm working on something in my head. And I, I think it's just music and guitar. You know, I've been playing guitar for, you know, 18 years. I've been doing this thing, and I think it's just my default mode. Whenever, whenever my mind gets quiet and whenever I have some mental free time, it's just my brain defaults back to music and hearing melodies and whatever so it's it's just i think the way that i've wired myself intentionally or accidentally to just kind of what's in my brain and playing guitar is just trying to flush that stuff out let's talk about the songs that you've picked for your song of the soul what do you want to start off with greg you've got a full cd of music here and a lot more i assume that's not on the cd what would you care to start with I think what we'll start with is a song called First Light, and that's just because it's the first song that I wrote. The first song I completed from beginning to end. I mean, I have a lot of sketches and little things, little ditties I've, I've put together, but this is the first piece I actually kind of composed. Where this comes from is kind of my ode to the Northwoods more than anything else. This was my attempt to rewrite Phil Keggy's Beyond Nature CD. Uh, he has a song in there called County Down, which was a, just a big, big influence on my playing and stuff. And so this is kind of sort of my way of writing part two to that song. It's actually from a place called the Will Creek Flowage up in the Chippewa County Forest up in northern Chippewa County here, where my dad used to take me duck hunting when I was a little kid. And it goes back and forth. There really aren't any, the DNR has done a number on that place, and there really aren't any birds up there anymore. But I, I still go up there. Uh, and I take a shotgun just because, but I think I go up there more to watch the sunrise now than anything else. This is kind of my ode to that spot in my life. So it's a song, which I assume you created and do indoors, about your outdoors life. How much of your life is outdoors? or Does the music compose itself while you're out there, or is it only afterwards? You know, I'm always hearing, I think most musicians are always hearing music in our heads and and com- I guess composing in a sense, but that doesn't mean that we always get back to our instrument in time to to work it out. You know, sometimes it'll a song will drag you out of bed or something because if you because you'll have something run through your head and if you don't get it down, then it's gone forever. But um, I think it's more that I've been so shaped by the outdoors, and you know, I grew up, I do a lot of fishing, and I, I really enjoy that. But it's not for the sake of catching fish any more than hunting is for the sake of shooting a deer or anything. It's just. It's just a way of experiencing creation, and uh, these are the things that have shaped me, and these are the things that are always in my head, my song of the soul, if you will. And you mentioned creation there. The name of the song is First Light. I'm Quaker, and my most common metaphor for God, the way I think of God, and the way I've actually experienced God in vision at least once, is as light. So when you say First Light, is this light and this creation, is this connected with the divine? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, you know. There's a scene in the last Lord of the Rings movie. If I remember right, I think Gandalf tells Aragorn, on this day, on such and such a day, at first light, look to the east. And then there's that that, that scene when when Gandalf rides over the top and the light comes up and, and hope has arrived. And there's, you know, and Tolkien's intentional when he says look to the east, you know. It's when God becomes part of his creation, um, its incarnation, it's, it's Bethlehem, it's the star of Bethlehem, it's the light in the east. 
in without without trying to reference that too directly, uh, it's the fun, I was going to say it's a metaphor for the sunrise, but it's more like the sunrise is a metaphor for Christ. The song is First Light. It's by my guest for today's Song of the Soul, Greg Gilbertson.
First Light. It's from Greg Gilbertson's CD called Limited Vocabulary. I want to talk a little bit about that name, Limited Vocabulary. Why did you choose that for the CD? Yeah, the title of the CD, Limited Vocabulary, is partly a pun because I don't sing on the CD. It's all it's an instrumental CD. But I think at the end of the day, the CD is my way of just telling people to shut up and love people. We spend so much time, especially in the church, man, arguing and debating whether it's doctrinal stuff or, or logistical stuff or whatever, that there seems so many times to be very little room for for real love. The, the, the image on the cover of the CD is an old run-down house that I, I, accidentally, I actually found because I took a wrong turn, believe it or not. But the story is that as I'm driving down this road, left-hand side of the road, there's a Catholic church with what appeared to be Apache, I think, you know, army attack helicopter parked in the front lawn on display. And I thought, this is this commentary is fantastic. Like I can't only in America, man, I can't believe this. So I stopped and, you know, maybe thankfully the chopper and they had a tank there too, which actually belonged to some uh, veterans facility which is next door to the church. And this is out in the country, I mean, there's no there's nothing around except this church, this veterans facility that's got these tanks and choppers and stuff up front on display. And then but across the road is the house that's on the C D. I mean, this house is I mean, it's just nobody should be living in these conditions. The house looks terrible. I turned around in the guy's driveway to try to take a picture of the chopper in the church. I noticed that there were license plates in the cars in back, that his garbage can was out there, like he had just taken out the garbage that morning, and there's a lot of evidence that seemed to suggest that somebody was really living in that house, and that just floored me. And what was especially striking was that this guy lives across the street from both the church and the state. And as much as we talk about the problem of poverty there's a real communication breakdown there if all we're going to do is keep talking about it. If, if the church and the state can both live across the street from this guy and he still lives in these conditions, it's just interesting commentary. And so I threw that in the cover CD because that's maybe that's sort of my point is that I think that I mentioned in the write-up on the inside of the CD jacket that there are places where words go to die. And the cover of the CD, in, at least in this situation, is that place. But what else What else I want to do with the CD is I just wanted to be able to give a soundtrack to my experience growing up, being Christian, how I see the world, redemption and suffering, the gospel, and just kind of give a soundtrack to my interaction with the gospel in my life. It's interesting that you refer to this music as kind of the gospel in your life. If I'm not mistaken, you were raised Catholic, as was I. The gospel was the sound of high mass choir, maybe, Or maybe it was a folk mass because I grew up 20 years before you. How is it that you come to refer to the gospel that's coming through you that you're experiencing as this music, which doesn't resemble those at all? You know, I I hadn't thought of that. That's really interesting, especially interesting right now because um, the Catholic church that I attend now has uh, just the the music and the choral work and stuff is absolutely terrific, and I, I really have a love for sacred music. But, you know, growing up makes sense in church, but I don't think those are the sounds, at least not that I was hearing, when I'm in a canoe or fishing boat or watching someone die of cancer or whatever. I mean, I'm not so sure that these are, these are the sounds that were in my head, though. I bet you if you looked at it, you could, you could maybe see that, maybe that it's influenced by that. I'm not sure. Well, let's go on to song number two for your Song of the Soul. You mentioned earlier that one of the seminal influences for you was Billy McLaughlin. So you picked a song that you wrote about Billy related to that inspiration. Tell us what the song's about, and why is this guy so influential for you? Billy McLaughlin is a guitarist from Twin Cities, who if you if you see me live or on a video or something, you'll see I do a lot of like two-hand tapping on the neck, and Billy is the guy who 
his music got me to kind of explore that kind of playing a little more. He's just a fantastic writer of melodies. But he came down with a condition called focal dystonia, where basically the ring and pinky fingers on his left hand, for all intents and purposes, are useless or paralyzed or crippled or whatever. What he learned to do was to play left-handed. He spent years, kind of disappeared for a while, learned to play left-handed, where he's now fretting his notes with his right hand and then tapping on the neck also with his left hand to, to get his bass notes out of that. What I did is I, I drove all the way up to Duluth. I, I missed his kind of debut comeback performance in, in the cities, and I drove up to Duluth one night to see him play. So this was, it was a very small, very intimate venue in an old church-turned-concert hall. After I left that show, watching him do, just starting to come back on the scene as a left-handed guitarist, which really for guitarists, that's like, that's like learning to talk backwards or something. I mean, it's just it's an amazing achievement to be able to do that. I wrote this song sometime after that concert. When I was done with it, it sounded to me like something, not to flatter myself, but it sounded to me like something Billy would have wrote. Or it sounded very heavily influenced by his music, which, of course, it was. And so I titled it after him. The title, Beyond What's Left, it, again, I, apparently I have an affinity for puns, but there's a pun there, you know, being left-handed guitarist and uh, what's left. But it's just, it's just the idea of, of just picking up the pieces of something in your life that's been shattered and just moving on and getting beyond that in the world of redemption that, that exists beyond suffering and be able to see through that.
that was Beyond What's Left. It's by my guest here today, Greg Gilbertson. Greg, have you had much experience, much success out there in the world with your guitar playing, uh, venues where you get to play? Yeah, I've, you know, it's, it's strange. I've played with um, a handful of my favorite musicians out there. It's strange because I kind of feel like an accidental guitarist, an accidental musician. Like none of this was something I set out for, and I really haven't achieved that much. But one thing I did do is back in September, I uh, took third place in uh, the International Fingerstyle Guitar Championship down at the Walnut Valley Festival in Winfield, Kansas, which it's a great competition. But the story there is that I, um, a couple weeks before the competition, my guitar was stolen. Then about a week after that, I was hauling some sheetrock into a house and I split, basically tore the tip of my ring finger on my left hand pretty much off. Really painful. And I had that stitched back on. I had to play a show at the State Theater here in Eau Claire with five stitches in the tip of my finger, which was either numb to where I couldn't feel the string, could tell what it was doing, and on other parts of my hand, just extremely painful. It was kind of getting both barrels, where I really had no idea what was going on with that finger, and whatever was happening was hurting a lot. And then... uh, Right after that, I decided, kind of on a whim, to drive down to Winfield for the competition and for the festival, really. And I wasn't even on the roster to compete, but they had an opening, so I took it and uh, ended up winning a guitar that was much nicer than the one that was stolen from me, and a third-place trophy. More than anything, I think it just helped me maybe feel like maybe I'm heading in the right direction with this, that this is Winfield, this is the International Fingerstyle Competition, this is the most prestigious of them all. So this is, regardless of all that, this is the one that matters. And to have a third-place trophy from that feels, especially with a busted-up finger and loner guitar, um, feels pretty cool. Congratulations on that. Now, you said you started out, Greg, as a Catholic, and you're Catholic now, but I believe there was a period in there where you were something else. Talk about that transition. Where did you go to from your growing up Catholicism? When did you leave that? Yeah, I grew up Catholic, and maybe somewhere around my sophomore, junior, senior year of high school, to be honest, I guess I don't remember when, a guy transferred to my school who I got to know really well, and he was part of an evangelical church in town. I tell you what, man, I like the way he talked about Jesus. I like the way that the gospel to him, um, I remember listening to him and one of his other friends from that church talk about the gospel, and it was like they were talking about a football game or something, or the way I would talk about just something I really love in my life, and it wasn't this kind of distant whatever. Had I been able to find, not I'm Catholic, maybe I can get away with saying this, but had I been able to find a few Catholics who believed in Jesus back when I was in high school, I probably would, never would have left the church. But there's this intense nominalism that you find in Catholicism that drives me nuts, and it's still there now that I'm Catholic again. But I've only come back to the church just for I've only been back for a couple months now. But I'm loving being back, man. I miss the liturgy. I miss the ties to tradition and church history. And what's really fantastic about it is the unity that Catholics have. There really is the church really does have one unified voice in the world, and so it's nice to be part of that chorus. Was it very much of a, a frame of reference switch for you to go from one to the other, from Catholic to evangelical, evangelical, perhaps now back to Catholic? What does that mean changed in you, really? I don't think it was It was a tough change the first time around. I think my family had a hard time with it, but I guess I didn't really care. Back when I was young and arrogant in high school, I thought I had God figured out all of a sudden. You know, <laughs> What was new for me was trying to take church and Christ seriously which I hadn't up to that point. Coming back now was much more difficult, but you know I still have a very good relationship with the, with the evangelical church that I was part of, and I'm still part of the, the youth ministry over there and stuff yet. 
which is a strange place <laughs> to be. <laughs> and even though I grew up Catholic and I'm now Quaker, I had stepbrothers and sisters who were Lutheran. As a Catholic, it was the assumption in our family that as long as I'm living at home, I'm going to church and I'm going to church every Sunday. For my Lutheran stepbrothers and sisters, they got confirmed when they were 14 or 15, and that meant that they could stop going to church except for <laughs> Easter and Christmas, as bizarre as that seems. Confirmation is kind of a rite of passage, and that's the name of the next song that you chose. What are the rites of passage that have been important to you? I think that follows the standard script of a lot of people. You know, maybe people haven't jumped between two different churches and stuff before. But, you know, whether it's, you know, graduation, jobs. I tried to do college for a little bit, but just didn't take. And then, uh, you know, marriage. And, and now that we're having kids, we have three daughters now. The reason the song's titled the way it is, I think, is because it's got these very subtle passages and these very energetic passages. It just ebbs and in moves and in climaxes and flows, but it goes, I think, pretty naturally from really quiet, subdued passages to these really intense passages. And I like the way that the song kind of, even when there are these surprises and these changes, that it almost seems like that's what had to happen next. And I guess that's kind of the way my life has gone.
That was Rite of Passage. Again, it's by my guest today, Greg Gilbertson, and it's from his CD, Limited Vocabulary. For a person who has limited vocabulary, he has some extensive readings and really wonderful thoughts to share. And you can find them out by going to his website. It's greggilbertson.com. And if you care to, you can find a link to that from my site, northernspiritradio.org. Greg, you have another piece that you've picked out. What would you like to share? More and more of my songwriting is coming from now is recognizing that I've I've had a pretty easy life. Like my parents are still married. They treated me well. I've always eaten well. Um, I've never really, really suffered. So, so what I what I find myself doing unintentionally, I think, is is looking at the suffering in the world and kind of weeping and bleeding over that with my music. This song here is, I think, the first time that I've really started to do that. This next piece is called "Eulogy for Drunk Man." There's a character, Marmalade, in Dostoevsky's *Crime and Punishment* which I was fascinated by his character. I think most people just kind of run by him. He's just kind of an extra in the book. But he's got this monologue in chapter one or two, or it's early on in the book anyway. The main character goes in and sits next to him at a bar. He goes in this drunken monologue, and it reads just like if you've ever sat next to a guy, in a, a drunk guy in a bar who just wants to talk to you, but you're not interested in what he has to say. I mean, it's the most boring section of a really slow, long book. But he ends... His conclusion in it, I think, is kind of the thesis for the whole book. The bartender, I think, hollers at him, and then he says, Do you think I'm looking for joy at the bottom of this glass? I'm not looking for that. He says, I'm looking for pain. He says, I'm here to suffer. He says, And one day the Lord's going to call me, and he's going to call everybody like me. You're going to stand there, and you and all your buddies are going to ask him, Lord, why these people? He's going to say, Because not one of these people thinks they deserve it. Not one of these people has have counted themselves worthy. And then it's fascinating to read the book and watch that idea right there play itself out in the life of Miss Colin Coffin and the other characters. Anyway, this was kind of my tribute to that character and kind of me eulogizing and lamenting his life.
That was Eulogy for a Drunk Man, Greg Gilbertson. Your music really does astound me. The passion, the variety, it really does feel like you must have many different hands, lots of different fingers working on the guitar. Do you go into like a special meditation when you play guitar? All the lights around you dim and everything's on the guitar? On the really good nights. <laughs> but that, you know, I mean, I think I'm like most people where... We want to we want to look like we're like we're doing that, but you know, nine times out of ten, I'm I'm just trying to get it right, man. I'm just trying to not make any mistakes. But you know, it's like anything. Sometimes you really feel a song and it just kind of makes sense why you're playing it right there, and you feel like you've really got something to say. And then the next night, that same song or none of the songs just may not move you at all. Another issue I was wondering about, you mentioned about the picture that's on the front of your limited vocabulary CD that it was across from this church, which coming up on it, it looked like there was a helicopter right in front of it. And, you know, what's this attack helicopter doing in front of a Catholic church? Talk about your views on war, peace, the church, religion, Jesus. You know, where do they fit for you? Where did they fit? I've been really influenced in the last few years through a friend of mine. Incidentally, the same friend that, that brought me over that evangelical church. Him and I are still very good friends. He got a master's in theology from Duke University, so he's been influenced by um, guys like Stanley Haras, and of course he was influenced heavily by Karl Barth and John Howard Yoder and some of these academics. And to be honest, it's it's mostly secondhand knowledge with me. Like I've flirted with these books and, and stuff enough to get where they're coming from. But the whole relationship of church and empire is something I find fascinating, particularly in America. It seems to me that whenever Paul says that Jesus is Lord, what he means is that Caesar isn't. And Caesar has many different reincarnations nowadays, and the one we have to deal with here is you know, essentially America. And that's not necessarily an anti-American statement. It's just a recognition that America just isn't the kingdom that Christ came to establish. And when we talk about not conforming to the patterns of this world, well, we have to talk about the world that we find ourselves in. And right now, the world I find myself in is America, and the empire that I have to deal with is America. Um, the state, the empire, the government, I mean, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But also to recognize that the church, whether it likes it or not, is political. That bishops, priests, and pastors are every bit as political as senators and congressmen. We just decide to do things differently. See, in the kingdom of God, weakness trumps power, and poverty is preferred to wealth, and we answer economic injustice not by voting a certain way to allocate funds here and there, but by just giving our money away. Good stewardship to Jesus, you know, talking about money and stuff, is sell all you own, give it to the poor, and come follow me. So I think we need to rethink, as the church, our relationship to the state. And I read on one of your blog entries that Jesus came and he was victorious and about his kingdom on earth. And that's not a point of view a lot of people have. It's a lot of people, I think, including evangelicals, are thinking that it's the future kingdom when Jesus will be on earth. And then the whole idea of the Church of Rome as the Church of God. I mean, for a long time, the church governance and the governance of the empire, they were hand in glove. So, you know, what's your point of view on that? I mean, is it any government can be, you know, the government of God or not? No, I, I'd go strongly in the other direction on that. There are a lot of metaphors that the New Testament uses for, for the church, you know, whether the flock or the body or the bride of Christ and all these things. But the idea of the kingdom of God in Christ's kingship are a metaphor for nothing. Like Christ is a real legitimate king. And I think we like to think of him as a spiritualized king who 
came with a very spiritual agenda. But see, once that happens, there's a lot of things that Christ isn't able to do. He's not allowed to tell you how to spend your money. He's not preaching any kind of a social ethic or any real politics. The way we read the passage I referenced a minute ago, that, that Christ says to sell all you own and give to the poor and come follow me. The way we read that and the way it's preached in a lot of churches is you need to be willing to do that. See, you need to be willing to give up your money. But you don't actually have to do it because Christ isn't really calling you to do anything. The problem with that is that he is. And he really is our king. And he came with an ethic and a kingdom of peace and a way to pursue that peace that costs us our lives sometimes, just as it costed him his. And I think as American Christians, we need to rethink how we interact with the state and what we need to do is we need to read The Politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder. <laughs> he says it much better than I can. So people should go looking for The Politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder, um, Mennonite, if I'm not mistaken, and you'll find some excellent, excellent thoughts there. And I want to remind you that you can find more ruminations on these things via Greg Gilbertson's website. The site is greggilbertson.com, and you'll find a lot of good thoughts there to follow up, both about church and religion, music, and Brett Favre. Well, let's go on to your last song that you chose for your Song of the Soul. Tell us about it and why you chose to include it. The reason I want to include this is is because I think it's a good follow-up to Eulogy for Drunk Man. What I wanted to do when I wrote this is I wanted to end with something lighthearted and something kind of fun, and I didn't know we'd be talking about church, empire, politics, and stuff like that. And I'm really, I don't think I want to be seen necessarily as a political musician, you know, but... I guess that's what I am, whether I like it or not, on some level. But um, I just want the gospel to be preached, and I want people to grab onto that. But I wrote this song because I wanted to write something that hobbits could drink to. (laughs) On some level, to me, this is what, I guess, redemption sounds like. And those Lord of the Rings books have been... I'm not a Lord of the Rings geek. I don't own any swords or anything like that. But but boy, they're good books. And the Christ typology and stuff in the books is just fantastic. But this is just kind of my tip of the hat to those books. And the name, The Woodshedder, what's that a reference to? I don't remember that from the books. It's not in the books. I couldn't bring myself to give it a, a Lord of the Ringsy title. <laughs> but, you know, I've been playing guitar for a long time, and I haven't really performed. Until I started doing this solo acoustic guitar thing, I didn't really perform all that much. And this is a song that I was in the process of writing when I started deciding I was going to perform my, my music. Uh, woodshedding is usually what musicians call sitting at home and practicing and getting really good and not showing it to anybody. Uh, If someone needs to work on their stuff, they need to go back to the woodshed. And I think it's something that guitarists particularly have grabbed onto. So I think more than anything, I titled it just because I needed a title for the dang thing before I recorded it. So they got called the woodshedder.
Woodshedder, Greg Gilbertson, out in Woodshed practicing, getting ready to perform in public, I think. And it's, as he said, an excellent song for hobbits to drink to. (laughs) That's quite a vivid picture. (laughs) Sometimes as musicians, we just don't take ourselves very seriously, thankfully. I do think people can go to your website, keep their eye posted on greggilbertson.com, and again, you can always find that via Northern Spirit Radio. Dot org, and uh, you know you'll find out what Greg Gilbertson's doing and find his schedule and you're in for a treat. Thanks so much, Greg, for sharing your music. It's rich. Thanks for sharing your thoughts via your website. There's some great, deep, profound thoughts to help spur more thoughts. And in the building of community, I think we end up getting rich. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. This has been terrific. It's always nice to be able to, as an instrumental musician, to be able to say what you're really thinking once in a while. So I appreciate the opportunity to do that. That was today's Song of the Soul guest, Greg Gilbertson, website greggilbertson.com. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy, let in the light, it will heal you. And you can feel you and sing out a Song of the Soul.